and we're at that part of the series where we're just sort of picking up sort of uh, various topics. So you can't do a series on science and faith without avoiding the lightning rods, okay? So today we're going to deal with one of those. Um, no surprises here. At the core of our faith is this fundamental belief that we inherited for Judaism. We had to fight for it in the early centuries because in the Greco-Roman world, it was not a popular belief, and it's one that we had to contend for mightily. And it is simply this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That we belong to a tradition which believes that God is intimately related to the physical world, the created order. Um, that all that's come into being is here, and we've, we've talk, actually talked about this several times the last few weeks. It's come into being because of God. Uh, but there's a second aspect, and we're going to deal with the first aspect some today, but we're going to focus more on the second aspect. And that is that we not only affirm that the universe is its origin in God, we also affirm that the universe uh, is sustained by God and that God has an ongoing creative presence within the physical order. Those two, of course, are related, but they're also distinct from each other. Um, so creation refers not only to an event in the past, the creation, which is sometimes what we think of, but it refers also to this ongoing process that lies behind everything and that moves the universe forwards. Uh, of course, this second aspect has been the lightning rod. Anybody recognize that picture? Yeah. yeah. Uh, relatively famous trial uh, became a, uh, a play and a movie called Inherit the Wind. Right. Very famous confrontation between science and faith. This is the famous Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. Just uh, Google that and you get all kinds of funny cartoons and images. Uh, telescope forward 100 years later, and we now are in the midst of the intelligent design argument, which there's some relationship with. Uh, uh, poor Texas, uh, 2011 was not our banner year. Y'all heard all that, right? The Education Board voted 20-something to 2 to include intelligent design as a scientific theory and cast doubt on whether or not evolution was in fact a scientific theory. Political forces were at work and then that vote was rescinded and they re-voted and went in a different, different way. I'm not sure what's happened this year, but uh, my hunch is it's still flying around. Creation and evolution. Uh, these two are very often pitched against each other and on one side you've got some people of faith who see within the theory of evolution, Darwin and all that, a threat to our faith, a very serious threat. On the other side, you've got some people of science who see in evolution the best explanation of how things are, but not only that, they see God not as, as unnecessary or some might even argue a failed hypothesis. So we got books like these from uh, Victor Singer and uh, Richard Dawkins, who would argue very much against the faith-based view. Both of those positions, the extreme of faith and the extreme of science, uh, see the relationship between science and faith, or particularly between creation and evolution as an either-or, and that we would have to choose one or the other, that somehow or another they're incompatible. So they all get these really great posters and bumper stickers that you, can, you two can purchase for a small nominal fee. Now, our tradition is in the middle. No surprise there as Methodists, okay? Uh, we see science and religion not as contradictory, but as complementary. 
Uh, we looked at it in, in great detail earlier, but there is this seminal statement. Uh, let's say this together. Science and theology are complementary rather than mutually incompatible. We recognize science as legitimate interpretation of God's natural world. We affirm the validity of the claims of science in describing the natural world. Okay. That is our official position. We do not see contradiction. Now, it's interesting that the Natural Academy of Science, which represents mainstream science, the United States around the world, uh, makes a very, very similar position. I thought you might be interested in this. Uh, the actual banner this is under is under the topic of evolution. And under evolution, there's a subsection called the compatibility of science and religion, and this is the statement. Today, many religious denominations, many religious denominations, accept that biological evolution has produced the diversity of living things over billions of years of Earth history. Many have issued statements observing that evolution and the tenets of their faiths are compatible. We would be one of those, not the only one, but we'd be among them. Scientists and theologians have written eloquently about their awe and wonder at the history of the universe and of life on this planet, explaining that they see no conflict between their faith in God and the evidence of evolution. So within mainstream Christianity and within the mainstream scientific community, there is a mutual respect for each other and there's a mutual consensus that the two are not fundamentally at odds with each other. Of course, there's a bigger question behind all this, and this is it. Whether we can meaningfully talk about a guiding hand within the universe or whether it all happens through blind mechanistic chance and whether targeting on some particular personalities, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution through natural selection combined with Gregor Mendel's theory of genetics. By the way, when you put those two together, what's the term you have? You might know that. Neo, the Neo-Darwinian synthesis. So getting those together produces you something. That's, uh, there's some famous authors writing on that. You know. Are they necessarily at odds with our belief in God and a creed that affirms in the God who has created past event and is creating ongoing process, which is one of the reasons we use that creed this morning. We affirm that God not only brought the universe into play, but that God is a continuing presence behind whatever is going on out there. Uh, the perceived conflict is at two levels. We're going to look at the second level mostly, but we do want to hit the first one because there's one aspect of that we've not touched on. Uh, the first is based on the belief that scientific cosmology, the origin of the universe, how it got started, the Big Bang, however you want to understand that, and creation faith are contradictory ways of looking at and explaining the same thing. They're both talking about the same thing, but the way they do it are mutually exclusive of each other, mutually contradictory. So some people, that's where you get the idea you've got to go one or the other. Central to the conflict is these two stories in Genesis that just seem to keep popping up. So anytime you have a discussion about creation and evolution, people refer to Genesis 1 and to Genesis 2. So we're going to spend a little time on that this, this morning. Uh, those stories are seen as foundational to our faith and for some, seen as problematic for science. So there's something about these stories that creates some tension. Uh, 
But again, there's only conflict if the two, in fact, are talking about the same thing and describing the same thing. Because if they're talking about the exact same thing, of course, there very well could be. But, and this is from the side of faith, uh, no. What's going on in the Genesis story is not remotely the same as what's going on when we're talking about Darwin or we're talking about science or any of that. Uh, the Genesis stories were never meant to be what you and I today would call science. For one thing, when did modern science emerge? What century? 1700s, 18th century, some of it a little earlier than that. Uh, does anybody remember roughly when the Genesis stories were written? <laughs> probably in the form they are during the Babylonian period, probably about 6th century BC. Predates science by a little bit. So you know the definition of an anachronism, right? When you hold something accountable to another era's standards and stuff. So probably we cannot hold the creation stories accountable to modern scientific worldview. But in fact, there is science in them. It's just a different science. Uh, it is true that, the, that at one level, the creation stories do contain cosmologies. They do, in fact, contain ideas about the beginning in the universe. They just don't happen to be modern ones. They contain ancient ones. Uh, they do have an explanation of the other is. Uh, this is it. It's not their primary purpose, but have you all seen this artwork before? Okay. What is this? This is the worldview of Babylonian and shared by others in the ancient world. But it's a very common sense kind of thing. You've got the earth, and up above us we've got things that move, stars, sun, moon, and we have various beliefs about them. And we think on the other side of that is water, one big ocean. Why would you think there was water up there? It rains. What color is water? Blue. What's got, what color is the sky? Blue. What falls out of the sky? Water. What's up there? Water. Now, down below, have you ever, if you're, especially if you're a desert nomadic people, what comes out of the ground every now and then? Water. So what must be below the ground? Water. Okay. So it was a very common sense. It was actually empirical based on their empiricism, based on how they perceived the world. There was this shared view of the ancient world uh, and the pillars of the earth, the primeval ocean. You get variations in the theme, but this understanding was, it was Assyrian, it was Babylonian, it was Greek to some degree. It was a very shared kind of thing. Uh, so the creation stories teach a religious truth, but if you look at uh, Genesis 1 in particular, and then you slide over to the Babylonian creation story, you're going to notice real quick, Genesis 1 is using the Babylonian creation story. The basic imagery that's there. Now, you have to ask yourself, is that, is, that, uh, is that really what it's up to? Is the purpose of Genesis to teach Babylonian science? I'm thinking probably not. Okay. The purpose of Genesis is to teach what? Yeah. God, us, the relationship, but it uses the science, the cosmology, the worldview of the day, because that's what people thought in. Uh, but again, it's teaching truth about God. So the writers of Genesis took the dominant worldview of the time, the Babylon of science, 
And by the way, they made it resoundingly Jewish. <laughs> I would say they baptized it, but that's a Christian metaphor. Okay. You know what they did? It's an interesting thing. Uh, they took the Babylonian gods, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And you remember Genesis 1? Where do those thing com things come from? God creates them. So the Babylonian gods become from our God. They're creatures, just like it's serious demotion, okay? From the pantheon down to just creatures. And, they, and so there's this sort of polemic there. Okay, you may have your gods. Our God created them, you know? <laughs> Take that. So there's this Jewish polemic. It makes them subservient to the one true God of creation. Now, the Genesis narratives also contain these delightful things called ideologies, uh, these little, little comments about explaining things, and they're just sprinkled all through that. Uh, why, by the way, why do we have to work? And some of us like and enjoy it, but why do you have to work, according to Genesis? We sinned, you know, and it's a punishment for sin. And uh, it's the same reason that women experience pain of childbirth. Why do snakes crawl in their bellies? Acquiring minds want to know, you know, yeah. Uh, this is the old used car, uh, used car statement, you know. Some, you got snakes that speak in half-truths, you know, and so they got punished for that. How are we like the rest of creation? Well, we are dust. Adam is made from Adama, dust. So we are literally dirt balls, okay? That's, that's what Genesis says. But we are unique. We have breath, we have spirit, we have imagio Dei, the image of God. And the language shifts whether you're in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. But both stories make the same point. We are creature, dirt, but we are unique among God's creation. There's something that God has put within us that makes us stand out as being different. Uh, it also explores deeper issues. Why is there suffering in the world? By the way, the stories that we think got their form that we have them after the exile so one of the things that, that the Jewish people would be reflecting on is God why did you allow your, your people to be destroyed why did you allow the country to be destroyed why did you allow Jerusalem to be destroyed why did you allow the temple to be destroyed and kingship and, and everything that they had that gave them identity was destroyed and there's a lot I mean you've got books like Ecclesiastes and the book of Job, and lots of books reflecting on God, why did that happen? So, again, it reflects on that. Why are things not the way God would have them? Because we don't live in Eden the way God intended it. We live east of Eden where we got kicked out because we failed to trust God. And there you're in, in the, the theology of Deuteronomy. So there's a lot in that Genesis story. But if you look at whatever's there, Probably not the major concern of the Genesis writers is the mechanics, the science, the worldview. It's a vehicle, but it's not the major point. Um, they borrow the Babylonian view to tell the story. Um, if these stories are primarily about how, you might wonder about the wisdom of putting two creation stories in there side by side, particularly when it comes to the uh, issue of when were humans created. According to Genesis 1, what order are we in the creation? Dead last, okay? We're the crown jewel of creation. 
God creates the heavens and the earth and all of that, and that the, on the sixth day, everything else is good. On the sixth day, God creates us, male and female, and then God, this is the only time that God does not say it's good, God says it's very good. And then God rested because complete, you know, was completed. Go to Gen Genesis 2, and we start all over. This time, we are not the last in creation. We are, or do we have that backwards? Because in Genesis 2, yeah, so in Genesis 1, all everything's brought to you, and, and Adam names them, okay? And, uh, and then we have the exact opposite. So at a literal level, Genesis 1 contradicts Genesis 2, if that was the point. Now, I think we might say, given the benefit of the doubt, that maybe the biblical writers knew that, and it wasn't an issue for them. So maybe the point they're making is not at that level. It's a different kind of issue. Uh, so the creation stories are narratives to express deeper truths about God, who we are, the relationship. Their truth does not lie in the vehicle they've used. Uh, the truth lies in the, the spiritual content of the stories. It lies what they have to say about God. Uh, now, that means that the difference between the Genesis narrative and the difference between that and a modern scientific explanation of the world is huge. They're not trying to do the same thing. One is talking about God and our relationship with God using some worldview. The other one seeks to explain how things work. So they're very, very, very different from each other, not talking about the same thing. Uh, but there's a second level, and this seems to be the one that even draws more fire. This idea that there's an ongoing process that drives the universe. And this raises that issue of evolution that is a real stickler for some people. Uh, is the power that's at work in the universe, the force driving change, driving evolution of life, is this merely a blind, mechanistic, deterministic force? Or is it part of some kind of an ongoing creative activity, one that our tradition would attribute to God? Now, this becomes an issue in the mid and late 1800s uh, you know, the pictures of J Charles Darwin, he always looks like 175, right? Okay. <laughs> Give him credit. He came up with his theories as a very young man. Most scientific breakthroughs are made by very young people. So this is the young Charles Darwin. Uh, he did uh, groundbreaking work. And his, the core idea, as he looked at stuff and tried to figure out what was going on, is that there is natural selection through... Uh, that's what drives evolution, that evolution will generate lots of variations. Some of them have a better chance of surviving than others. And so that's natural selection. Um, he gave a plausible account for how this could happen without making any reference to anything remotely religious. He just explained the mechanics of how it could happen. At about the same time, and what I read is they did not know of each other's work. They were working independently about the same time. Gregor Mendel, a, a Catholic priest, a monk, was doing work with what? Peas. Yeah, we think we studied that in elementary school. Uh, and genetics. And the issue he was dealing with is how can a trait pass from one generation to another? How can it be inherited from parent to child? And of course, his work explained that. Um, you put those together, and people begin to say, 
We can explain the natural order. We can explain how things are, but we don't need God. Uh, we can simply explain it mechanistically. Uh, others took the work further in, uh, in ways that became much more hostile. Uh, the neo-Darwinist evolutionists are the probably the extreme of that group. Um, they're the ones who advocate, do you remember ontological naturalism? We had meth methodological naturalism is that science says we're only going to deal with the empirical. That's a method decision. This is how we work. We deal with the data of the physical world. We're not going to worry about anything else. Ontological naturalism says not only that, but that's all there is. If it can't be measured, quantified scientifically, it does not exist. And within this group, they've taken that big second step, which many, many scientists will tell you has nothing to do with science. Uh, that evolution occurs through natural selection, through sheer random chance, nothing else involved. Um, they argue that empirical science can explain everything. As uh, some of them said, we no longer need the hypothesis of God. We don't need that to explain things. There's no guidance. There's no purpose. Uh, you've heard of the Four Horsemen? Now, these are what? The mid, uh, about five, six years ago, when their books were real strong and come out, uh, they were called collectively the New Atheist. And wh what I want you to know from this is that they all argue from a neo-Darwinian position. This is where they're coming philosophically. This is uh, Richard Dawkins, probably the most vocal. And he has this wonderful quote. Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Because intellectually, for the first time, I have a way of explaining things that simply does not require God. Now, a little sidebar here. We found this with Galileo. There's all this mythology, even in science, all this mythology about things. So there's this whole Darwin story. It's become the stuff of myth and legend, and most of it's wrong. So James Moore, you may know, is probably considered to be the leading historian in the world on Charles Darwin. Has written more books. He's the go-to guy, if you, if you know about Charles Darwin. Uh, here's a quote by him. For more than a century, the age-long warfare, remember that metaphor that we've seen since the late 1800s, between science and religion has functioned as a creation myth for science. This is how science came to be. To explain the world as seen in the light of modern science. According to this myth, the new nature, technical term that's thrown around, emerged from the relentless conflict of reason versus faith, pure scientific inquiry versus that authority of the church, truth versus error. And you know which side of it we're on, okay. Uh, and the greatest Victorian cause of this war was the heroic evolutionist Charles Darwin. That's the myth, uh, whose theory of evolution by natural selection finally disproved, and there it is, the book of Genesis. So one does away with the other. But modernity's Christian myth, uh, creation myth, too, tends to be undermined by familiarity with historical evidence. I love it. Only a historian can, can get away with saying that. So it looks really good until you examine the evidence, and then it just falls apart. As a spate of recent scholarship has shown, Darwin's own Christian background, his lingering religious beliefs, which he, in fact, did have, his attitude toward the faith of others, most importantly, it would have been, his wife, who was a very firm believer, and then their relationship was very critical to him. 
does not harmonize well with the old myth of scientific origins. So, you know, that stuff tends to fall apart. But here's the real issue. Whether or not um, there is evolution, whether or not you believe in that, or whether life evolves, there is no inherent conflict between that position and the historic position of our faith. Uh, let me say it again. There is no conflict with evolution as a theory with the historic faith we call it Christianity. Uh, that view is perfectly compatible to theistic view. Natural selection can be and is viewed by many believers as simply the mechanism through which God works. Anybody here buy into that view? Yeah, a bunch of us, myself included. Evidencing, evidencing the ongoing creative process of God. Many people of faith hold the view and see no conflict with the basic tenets of their faith. The real issue is not evolution, but is it blind or is it guided? And there the two part go different direction. Theists, that would be us, can argue that natural selection and evolution are part of an overall, even a larger process by which God continues to create. Hop back to cosmology for just a moment. You understand the, the Big Bang Theory and the flow out? According to Big Bang Theory, at the right after creation, a few seconds, what does the universe consist of once it's cooled down from 20 trillion degrees? Hydrogen. Some will say hydrogen and maybe some helium. That the universe is elementally simple. But there are gravitational eddies, and gravitation pulls stuff into clumps, and the clumps get bigger, and the clumps get big enough to cause what? Stars, fusion. They get so big, the gravity is so intense, the heat is generated, it ignites. The stars, at this point, the universe still consists of hydrogen. But when the sun burns, what does it do? It takes two hydrogen atoms and produces helium. Okay? And then the star goes a few billion years, lives its life, and then it goes bang. And what does the bang produce? Everything else, including carbon. So part of the way we view the universe is that the universe through its life has gone from simplicity to increasing complexity. The universe is hardwired that way, going from hydrogen to helium to the heavier elements and then beyond that. This produced the stars, it produced galaxies, it produced life, because only after the first generation of stars have run their life and have gone nova or supernova are we going to have things like carbon and oxygen, which goes into water. So behind genetics and natural selection, there's a little thing called the anthropic principle. The people who argue that in the very structure of the universe itself, as it rolls forward, we, sit, we tend to see some type of a design here. The very forces that some call blind and mechanistic, by the way, that's kind of a Newtonian way of looking at it, the same forces are the ones that produce increasing complexity, life, consciousness, and us. Many within science, and you, I mean, they're writing books, it's no secret, many within science see purpose within the universe and within what's there. Uh, purpose, you know, driving us towards a particular end. So in quantum physics, which we looked at one week, the idea that the consciousness underlies everything, making choices, making decisions. And again, the conflict only arrives 
if evolutionary scientists take the philosophical view, not the scientific view, the philosophical view of ontological naturalism. That mutation and natural selection proves there's no design, no purpose, nothing but blind, pitiless chance and indifference. That's actually a quote from one of those authors, you know. Is that science? Do we have any data that would support that? No, we don't. That is actually a faith statement. These kind of statements go beyond empirical data. They're not scientific. It's just like the statement, there is no God. Okay, the statement, there is a God, is not a scientific statement. It's a faith statement. The statement, there is no God, is also not a scientific statement. It's a faith statement. It, so these statements are metaphysical, philosophical, and theological. They're an add-on. They reflect an ide ideology. They reflect an agenda. Although they're sold in the name of science. But they're not science. A lot, of, a lot of philosophers of science can tell you that. So the best science is at least open to the possibility. I mean, you can't say it's proven. But at least the possibility that the universe is not blind, not uncaring, not mechanistic, but rather in particular within the realm of quantum physics, it's dynamic, it's holistic, it's relational, relational, and it may in fact be consciousness. And that's not just a description of how the world began. That is a description of the ongoing processes of the universe. So both creation in terms of beginning and creation in terms of process both would be supported. So, the same science that tells us the universe can be seen as purposeful, that the natural order is being directed to some end, uh, this means that neither aspect is contrary to science. It may be non-scientific, but it is definitely not contrary to science. Uh, but it is at odds, our faith is at odds with some of these ideologies that are being put out there. Save the best for last, okay? There's one little issue bubbling around here we want, didn't want to deal with. Uh, the conflict between science and faith can arise not only from, like the new atheist, a scientific side making philosophical, theological claims about science, but it can arise from the faith side when people of faith claim that their faith is in fact science. And that is a big issue out there right now. This type of conflict shows up in a particular form of design argument that is known as intelligent design. I'll be honest, before I researched this, I did not, I misunderstood what intelligent design was. I thought it was just another form of the design argument that we've seen. This is not. This is a fundamentally different baby. Um, it's different from any other faith-based argument in at least three ways. First of all, Intelligent design is a form of the design argument that is applied not to the beginning of the universe, but to the ongoing process of creation, which means intelligent design is being put forward as an alternative to Darwinian evolution. Okay? It's being put as, as par. So in some of the discussions you've seen in the legislature and the, and the political end of it, we want to be able to teach both, right? That's the argument. We want to teach evolution, and we want to teach these are kind of competing theories. Number two, intelligent design bases its design argument on physics, which is where all the others seem to come from. This one bases its argument on biology, which is home turf for who? The neo-Darwinians, okay? Uh, it's the home turf of those who are most opposed 
that's going to get you a fight right there. Uh, third, intelligent design presents itself as science. This is critically important. It does not present itself as a faith-based argument. It's presenting itself as science. It very carefully, very intentionally avoids any reference to God or to creator or to anything like that. Intelligent design argues from specific aspects of design within the universe, but in their case, they're arguing from the biological parts of it. Uh, here's their basic claim. That intelligent causes are necessary not to explain the stars and the galaxies and the origin of the universe, but to explain the complex, information-rich <coughs> structures of biology. We're now talking about genetics and all that kind of thing. And that these causes are empirically detectable. Why would that be important? If it's empirically detectable, it is science. Okay. Now, as with all design arguments, the core belief is that the universe evidences design, and design implies a designer. The designer would, of course, be God, even if you don't use the word. This is carefully and deliberately not stated. Mentioning God would mean that you're no longer in the realm of science. You're in the realm of religion and faith. Is that a constitutional issue? What's the const what's First what Amendment. First Amendment, which guarantees what? Anti-establishment, Anti which means Congress shall make no law. Which means it's religious, you have to keep it out of state controlled activities. What's the number one state controlled activity we want to fight about? Public education, what our children learn in school books. Okay? So you see where this is coming from. Uh, by arguing that it's not sci by by arguing that it's science, intelligent design gets around the First Amendment, and it gets around several court rulings by the Supreme Court and state courts, which have consistently said what? You can't do that. Yeah, you cannot. You cannot put forward a religious-based principle in the state school. So, and it even gets weirder. Ironically. The conflict between evolution and ID and the courts uh, and the Texas Board of Education are not primarily, at least in the way they're, they're, they're being played out, about science and religion. Uh, the real issue is control of state education and control of textbooks. Now, Texas is the what size market in the United States? Number two. I would think California would probably be number one. So what we do in this state matters because a lot of the smaller markets tend to follow whatever we do. So there's a lot of political pressure. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of money going into this. Um, and then we get these contradictory decisions. By the way, you can just Google this. The uh, Texas School Board 2011. It was the year of the great flip-flops. Okay, They went back and forth depending... Uh, our governor appointed a new head of that who was uh, very much into intelligent design. Uh, they controlled the board, except they were two, vo two votes short of a plurality. They did get a vote through that was very controversial. All hell broke loose. They got back together and they re-voted. And some of you know more about that than I do. But it's, it's, it's a messy situation. Here's the cash out. From a science viewpoint, there's an absolute consensus. Intelligent design cannot stand 
as science. And intelligent design wants to, wants to be taken as science. Okay? Now, this is not controversial. This is something the leaders of intelligent design themselves know and admit. So I want to give you three quotes. One's Paul Nelson. And some of you may read their work. Uh, he's an intelligence design advocate. And here's what he admits coming from that position. Easily the biggest challenge facing ID community is to develop a full-fledged theory, a scientific theory, of biological design. We don't have such a theory right now, and that's a problem. This is a, somebody from that viewpoint saying, we want to be presented as science, but we don't have the science to do it. That's quite an admission. Number two, Michael B. He's a biochemist. He's another ID advocate. There is no peer-reviewed articles by anyone advocating intelligent design. Some of you within the, the, intelli the scientific community, if there are no peer-reviewed articles, what is that? That's death, right? That means it's not science. Uh, supported by pertinent experiences or calculations which provide detailed, rigorous accounts of how intelligent design of any biological system occurred. Number three, and he has, this guy has the most clear one. Again, he's an advocate of intelligent design, which means they're looking for this. They just don't have it. The absence of precise methods for distinguishing intelligent-caused object from unintelligently-caused ones, that's the kicker, right? That's the crux of the whole thing. How would you distinguish something that is intelligently designed from something that is not? That's a scientifically important distinction. Um, has kept ID outside the scientific mainstream. <laughs> For design to be a fruitful scientific concept, scientists have to be sure they can reliably determine whether something is, in fact, designed. Very hard to do. Of course, they're working on it. Which means that at present, ID is maybe great theology, but as science, it's not accepted by the mainstream at all anyway. So, one week left, one issue left, life after death and the soul. So here's the question. Can modern science make a contribution? By the way, what's the book that came out two weeks ago? Proof of, proof of Heaven. And he was a bio-neurologist was uh, on the machine, infection, all the higher functions of the brain shut down, but he ran the experience. So uh, the issue is bigger than that one, but that, that's an interesting book that's just come out that deals with that kind of thing. So for our last week, let's do that, okay? <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, 144.